I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the U.S. tried to really strong arm them into saying, no, this is what we're doing. <laughs> Sorry. Mm. But uh, will that work? You know, how far is the U.S. willing to go? Are they willing to try to, you know, influence a coup or something? I don't know. I don't know. But it, we'll see. Um, but, I, you know, especially let's say DeSantis gets elected. I don't think that's going to happen. Mm. But say he comes in in 2024 or, um, you know, I guess he'll come in in 2025. But and the Kuomintang, you know, spent Biden's last year kind of trying to ease back and they're talking to China. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if, if a Republican came in and started threatening sanctions and stuff on Taiwan. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty, physical, and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on leg day. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica. So if that's a problem, kiss my ass. Okay. Oh, <laughs> all right everybody this is in liberty and health and returning to the show it's been a little bit uh my dear friend dave the camp how you doing dude i'm good kyle thanks for having me back yeah of course well uh lots to catch up on and uh lots to talk about i know we keep up in the chat pretty regularly i saw you literally just sent something over right before we hopped on here about uh trump criticizing or you know was it santa's criticizing um trump for his handling of venezuela or something like that well it was pedro gonzalez i think mm, is his name um yeah. somebody who i really liked uh for a while but he's you know team DeSantis, and he's been going after trump for a lot of things and <laughs> there's this video that just went up i guess trump was bragging about his venezuela policy which involves uh, you know it was a failed regime change effort which sanctions they backed the failed coup they recognized you know juan guaido's president mm. even though he wasn't the president of venezuela yeah and I saw Pedro was just criticizing him, and DeSantis was, you know, right there with him. Uh, you know, part of the reason why is because he's the governor of Florida. There's a lot of Venezuelans and Cubans there, so pretty much a Florida governor is going to be really bad on that. But mm. you know, DeSantis was all in on the sanctions, recognizing Guado, just completely backed the the whole regime change effort. And there's no reason to think that he would be any good on that policy if he became president. I mean, he would, you know, Biden has lifted some sanctions like very minimally and uh they were talking with maduro and that really you know pissed off the venezuela hawks mm -hmm. um and desantis too he he came out against biden for doing that <laughs> so it's just <laughs> funny to see like you know desantis is going to be horrible i i just don't get it like you know a lot of the critiques that they're making of trump when it comes to foreign policy like desantis is going to be just as bad if not worse so yeah. it's just kind of it. I hate seeing it because again, it's, there's some people I like. Like I know Massey. I haven't really seen much foreign policy stuff from him, but even just seeing him like stick up for DeSantis, Massey. Just... Well, you know, Massey did come to bat with him over foreign policy, and he was sharing videos of him saying something about like we went all wrong in the Middle East or something like that. I'm yeah. like, come on, like Massey of all people, the least you could do is just like shut your mouth about his foreign policy. But then he opened his mouth on that, and like. 
that's one of the worst things about DeSantis and his time in Congress. And the one thing that people always throw in everybody's face who comes out against DeSantis, well, he voted against regime change in Syria in 2013. It's like, well, well that was like a clearly partisan thing. That was a popular yeah. thing to do amongst Republicans. It's not like it took any balls to do that. It was just one singular vote. So they'll like say, oh, look at this. He's not a neocon because of this. But everything else, you know, we could just look away from that. It's It's so ridiculous. Yeah, and he supported Trump bombing Syria. Uh, you know, he supported all that. So, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's just, I guess it's electoral politics, but it's just mm -hmm. always sad to see people kind of ignore, you know, reality. Yeah, people, uh, I've, I've been bitched about this so much lately, but like people put their finger in the air and feel which way it's blown. And you see Cernovich doing this now where he's, you know, all about Trump all of a sudden again, when, you know, six months ago, it, 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 these people just take every single side of every single issue when it comes to like Trump versus DeSantis or whatever. So like whenever Trump starts to look bad, they can say, oh, well, you know, I'm a DeSantis stand. And then whenever DeSantis looks bad, then all of a sudden they're Trump guys again. It, yeah. it gets so fucking boring. But really, there's no distinguishable difference when it comes to foreign policy between those two now you could say um trump ideologically is in a neocon but though he got rolled by them every single chance yeah there was time to do anything and and trump's rhetoric has been better on ukraine definitely yeah. i mean desantis I, I, I haven't been following it too close but i know he said something like oh we shouldn't get more involved it's a territorial dispute mm -hmm. but it's still it's not like you know, that's what's popular to say right now. If you're looking at polling among Republicans, more and more Republicans are against supporting Ukraine. And you have the most popular conservative, you know, commentator being really good on Ukraine, Tucker, like as uh, about as good as you can get. So it's like, that's why it's clear that that's why he's kind of entertaining the notion that if he became president, he might not keep supporting Ukraine. But I think it's just really obvious that it's just you know, for campaigning purposes. And he was on Fox News and, you know, they asked him about Ukraine. I forgot who the host was, but he just went on this rant about the woke military. Right. It's just like, you could tell he just doesn't, he gets uncomfortable because, mm -hmm. you know, I know like Jeb Bush backs him. And so he's definitely got some neocon backers, but he's also does have some more, you know, populist right wing backers too. So it's something he probably doesn't really want to talk about much. Um yeah, it's so, kind of yeah. interesting because he, he kind of he can't rock the boat too much in a lot of situations because mm -hmm. with the establishment backing, he has to be all in on Ukraine. But you could tell that he realizes that like the other half of his base is going to they're going to be completely alienated if he says I'm all in on Ukraine. But then, you know, if he says we should not intervene anymore, then the establishment backing is out. So he's really yeah. in a tough jam. And I, I it's kind of tough for me to say because it seems like to me he would want to be against the establishment because that plays really, really well with voters. But I, I don't think he's willing to rock the boat as much as people might have thought. Yeah, especially when it comes to foreign policy, it seems like. You know, the rhetoric against the Middle East war is like that's really safe to do now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even like, you know, Joe Biden just lied about supporting the Iraq war when he was running because he knew that it's not popular to, you know, say that you supported that war. So his solution was just to blatantly lie about it. And Democrats didn't care about that. So, yeah. So DeSantis saying, you know, it's really me like kind of meaningless now, I think, to say, oh, you know, some of this rhetoric about the forever wars in the Middle East, because unless you're saying like there are some good Republicans on this, obviously, like Rand Paul and Matt Gates now. Because they're talking about specific things. They're like, okay, we need to repeal the 2001 authorization for war because that's what we're using to stay in Syria, Iraq, Somalia, and across Africa and Yemen. 
mm-hmm. you know, they're going after specific things, but kind of that blanket rhetoric against endless wars, it's it, it doesn't really mean anything because people barely notice that those wars are still going on. Right. So unless you're like honing in on it, then I don't really think that they're serious about it. Yeah. Especially if they're Zionists, which, you know, everybody's going to be Zionist, but right. because if you support Israel that much, as much mm-hmm. as Trump and DeSantis uh, do, mm-hmm. then they're always going to be bad on Iran. So, you know, that's kind of why they could never actually really leave the region. Yeah, it's upsetting. And, and to your point, it is kind of upsetting to see the anti-war movement kind of got poison-pilled. And I tweeted that out today about Trump that... I don't even know if it was 100% him, but I I feel like he really kind of brought it about that it's popular to be anti-war, right? Quote, unquote. But like, what does that mean? Are you just, you know, it's good campaign rhetoric, but like nothing ever gets done and no one actually talks about specifics. Um, Mm -hmm. One person you brought up that I was kind of puzzled about was Matt Gaetz, because he has been heroic on a lot of this stuff. But when it came to voting against lifting sanctions on Syria, he actually voted, I think, in favor of keeping the sanctions on, if I remember correctly, which was like, I was really, really kind of like perplexed at that because he's been really good on Syria, but just for some reason, he didn't want to lift sanctions. Yeah, I mean, I chalked that up to laziness on his staffer's part. Mm. Um, because if you read that bill that they voted on, you know, the whole thing was like, oh, in support of Syri- the Syrian people after this hurricane, you know, they're, we got to protect the civilians. And then at the bottom, it said by enforcing the Caesar Civilian Protection Act, which is um, the bill that imposed these really harsh sanctions on Syria in 2019, or I think they actually imposed them in 2020. But that's the sanction that specifically target their construction and enter like the, to, to prevent the country from rebuilding. Um, so I think uh, I, that's my guess is that it was laziness or maybe I could be wrong. You know, he could just want, uh, you know, favor sanctions. Like some, some people say, you know, we could just use sanctions as an alternative, but it's just, yeah. you know, that causes all sorts of problems too. So, yeah. Um, but, you know, because only two people vote. It was Marjorie Taylor Greene and Thomas Massey. Right. I think Massey actually reads what he votes for himself. Yeah. You know, so, but when it comes to most members of Congress, you know, they rely on their staffers to read and tell them what they're voting for. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, one thing that I'm kind of that I was thinking about today while I was walking my dogs this morning was like it almost seems like people are kind of now moving on from the Ukraine war. Like we spent a hundred, what is it, 125 billion dollars there? And, 13 billion so far. <laughs> okay. Um and, and like now it seems like people are just you know, they kind of let it go like the Middle East wars. Like it still is popular to say it, but like there doesn't seem to be as much focus on it because now it's gone on for long enough. Um, what do you kind of think about that? Well, yeah, I mean, it is kind of becoming like normal. Uh, you know, it's just a normal thing now. Uh, every once in a while, we send them a, you know, they announce these new <laughs> weapons packages for Ukraine and, and all that. But I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just my internet bubble. It does seem to me like everybody's still talking about it, like mm-hmm. especially with that dam attack. And, you know, there's this yeah. risk. There's just so many risks. I mean, it's so crazy that how deeply involved the U.S. and NATO are now. But I'm sure, you know, in general, when it comes to just, you know, people that don't really follow foreign policy that much, I'm sure that it has just become kind of background noise that, okay, we're just going to keep sending these weapons to Ukraine, you know, whatever. So, yeah, and I really can't say, like, what is going to happen in the future, especially with this election. I mean, it's going to be really, it's tough to to figure it out um, uh, because... I can't imagine even if, like, say, by some miracle, you know, RFK Jr. became the Democrat nominee and won, 
you know, could he really end that policy? Could like, you know, he would really have to gut, like actually drain the swamp and like gut every agency and like, mm-hmm. you know, because the U.S. Is, is all in on this now. Like all this money that they spent, it's, in, it's you know, completely committed. And if, if you see this stuff, all the U.S. and NATO officials are saying, they're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, turning Ukraine into in Israel where like they get military yeah. aid each year, but they don't go as far as giving them like the security guarantees that NATO countries get. Mm-hmm. They just, that's what they want Ukraine to be permanently like this NATO bulwark right on Russia's border. Mm-hmm. So even if, I don't know, like if somebody... That's against it gets in. What you know? Maybe they'll settle for you know pause freezing the war and just you know, but keeping the military going. I don't know. Mm. It's just hard to imagine this like really ending. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I like about RFK and uh, Dave said this I think when he was on um, a week or two ago, but it's really like sticking a ruler into like the water and seeing what kind of sentiment there is amongst Democrats for the kind of real dissident left or populist left, however you want to term it um you know appetite for what he's saying and what's even better about rfk is that he's the only candidate that's good on china the only one who laid out like in you know like everyone said he's thought about this stuff he's not an idiot i mean i see some people bashing him for some stuff but like look (laughs) consider all your alternatives biden is literally the worst i mean he's escalated on every single front there's no diplomacy and then every single time one of the officials are going to go over for some kind of diplomatic you know reason or another or talk um it can be you know it gets sabotaged um we know Trump's not good on China. He has good rhetoric on Ukraine. That doesn't mean I believe him, but I mean, at least he's saying the right thing in the DeSantis. He's bad on all of them too. So um, it, it's good to see RFK at least putting that out there. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. And I mean, I think, you know, it's ultimately going to be, you know, good that he's running. Like you said, it's getting that message out to Democrats. Mm-hmm. So, you know, hopefully, because right now when it comes to Ukraine, I mean, there's no, there's nothing, there's no opposition. Um, you know, in Congress, I'm talking about, but like, you know, there's no dissent at all. Mm-hmm. So to have him out there, you know, he has the power, the weight of a of the of his name, you know, being a Kennedy. Mm-hmm. So people have to listen to him, and that's kind of what I think their strategy is right now, because the way the media works now, like I'm sure he's going to get on Joe Rogan soon. Yeah. Um, it's just like getting getting out the message out to as many people, and they can't control it anymore. Like it doesn't matter what CNN or MSNBC thinks. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I just think it's good for him to get that message out there and make more people rethink this whole Ukraine debacle. Mm-hmm. And I know like he, uh, you know, his rhetoric, some of his rhetoric sounds like typical Dem rhetoric when he's talking about Ukraine saying, oh, we're right. supporting him for because we're good. And his son was fighting there, which is kind of strange. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the way he should approach it as a Democrat, mm-hmm. being, you know, kind of empathetic to the Ukrainians and saying, you know, Russia is is horrible, but explaining you know the real causes of the war mm-hmm. you know i think that's the way he has to do it running as a democrat so it's not like you know it's, people try to post that clip of him saying you know all that typical stuff about ukraine is like a gotcha mm-hmm. but you know it's you know they the what's that old saying like ignore everything somebody says you know in a po- political statement before they say but <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. yeah that's just his disclaimer uh, you know mm-hmm. to say what his real position is yeah, and he's, from what I understand, always been solid on this kind of from the outset there. Um, so I guess kind of while we're on that topic, with that, what is it, the Kochkova Dam? Did I say that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Kakovka cool. Dam. Kakovka, I was close. Nice. Um, <laughs> I uh, I went for a haircut on Friday, and my barber asked me, he's like, well, what do you think? And I mean, we 
you know talk about this kind of stuff all the time yeah. he's like so who do you think blew up the dam i'm like come on dude really <laughs> like do you really think russia blew up their own dam and if i remember correctly, i think it was an article you wrote um either that or is kyle saying something about it um 75 percent of the water from that dam goes to russia if i remember correctly well so that dam uh 85% of Crimea's water comes from that, the, uh, a channel from that dam. Okay. And so when Russia annexed Crimea in 2014 after the coup, mm -hmm. um, you know, in response to the U.S.-backed coup in Kiev, mm -hmm. uh, Ukraine cut off that water supply because they controlled that dam. Mm -hmm. So that was one of Russia's reasons for invading. You know, they had a few reasons, but that was one of the first things they did. Yeah. Like the day after, like they got that dam really quick and they opened up that channel to Crimea you know, it caused very severe water shortages in Crimea. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, if you're just looking at this as, you know, an investigation, who has the motivation, uh, you know, you know, it, it hurts Russia more than, than it hurts Ukraine. You know, this blowing up this dam, mm -hmm. uh, Russia controlled it. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's tough to really know what happened here. Um, we know Ukraine, uh, there's a Ukrainian commander speaking to the Washington Post back in December 2022, saying that they were considering, you know, uh, attacking the dam and they actually test, did like a test launch of the HIMARS system against it. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a lot of evidence pointing in that way. Um, and the U.S., I think what's a big tell is that the U.S., the White House, is not taking Ukraine's side. Ukraine, of course, and a lot of members of Congress immediately blamed it on Russia but the White House hasn't. They still haven't. And I just saw a report from the New York Times that, you know, U.S. speaking to U.S. anonymous U.S. officials, they were saying they don't have evidence either way. All right, guys, um, I'm absolutely thrilled with the uh, show's new sponsor. Um, I am now sponsored and uh, have an affiliate through LMNT Electrolytes. Um, I have used these electrolytes for years. Um, back when I used to do a lot of fasting, in fact, I used to drink Sometimes I want to say up to seven a day, seven little packets. So um, the packets are full of all the electrolytes that you need to perform and hydrate yourself properly. Um, you need sodium for pretty much every single function in your body, despite what um, a lot of people may tell you. Um, sodium doesn't actually cause a lot of the issues that uh, people kind of would have you believe. So um, just real quick to give you a little bit of facts. Um, you don't need sugar to hydrate. Electrolytes and water don't require glucose to pass through the gut. The average American consumes over 60 pounds of sugar a year. And um, when it comes to athletic performance, um, you can actually lose up to seven grams per day in hot climate. So um, make sure you click on the affiliate link below to get all your hydration needs. And like I said, I'm super stoked to have these guys um, teamed up with the podcast and uh, just make sure you get your uh, electrolytes through element. All right, guys, thanks. So, you know, if, if they knew it was Russia or if they thought it was Russia, if they had like a, a hint that it was Russia, I think they would be saying that, mm -hmm. you know, it totally benefits their narrative. And, yeah. you know, so I think that's kind of a big, uh, big indication that it was not russia yeah so one thing that sparked in my head there i remember a couple months ago um you were saying that they really wanted um ukraine to make a big offensive come like springtime mm -hmm. and then obviously they they lost in bakhmut because that was considered the meat grinder and then i want to say that was probably like a month or so ago that they officially that russia officially took it over am i am i right so far yeah that's about the timeline okay um the other thing was is that um i think the Biden regime was kind of saying that like, Hey, you guys got to start like making good use of this money that we sent you in the weapons. 
um, if they're not immediately jumping to the idea, the White House in particular, that um, Ukraine or that Russia blew up the dam, do you think that could be symbolic of them kind of like saying, hey, we're going to start spacing ourselves like you guys got to figure something out so we can kind of pivot over to something else, probably Taiwan, China? Yeah, you know, there were some signs of that uh, earlier that I thought maybe, you know, that was happening towards the end of last year. It, it seemed like there was these reports that the U.S. was telling Ukraine, we don't know if this aid is going to last forever. Mm-hmm. But then recently, Blinken and a lot of other U.S. officials doubled down. They said, no, no matter how long this takes, we're going to keep supporting Ukraine. So I think they're committed. Um, but I think they are trying to distance themselves from some things that Ukraine has been doing, mm-hmm. like that are, have been getting more attention, like the assassinations of civilians you know, that supported the war. Basically, like media people in Russia that have been getting killed. Yeah. for supporting the war that's like if you know people that go on cnn and fox news you know we're getting killed it's pretty crazy uh that they've been doing that and also Nord Stream, uh you know there's the seymour hirsch report that says the u.s did it and i think there's a lot of evidence to to, to point the blame on the biden administration but then there's been these reports recently that uh it was ukraine you know claiming that there's these discord leaks that said that the u.s knew Ukraine was plotting this and they didn't, they tied it directly to Zelushny, who's the commander in chief of the Ukrainian armed forces. So they're kind of trying to pin the blame for Nord Stream on Ukraine when it, it probably, I still think it was probably the U S. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I, I think, you know, they're probably trying to distance themselves from some things. And I think maybe, uh, the military aid might, you know, wind down a little bit, but I still think that they plan on sending it. It might just not be as much. Um, for the future, but at the same time, there is, I think, an element of the gov- of the U.S. government in the Biden administration that does want to focus more on Taiwan and kind of wants to speed that up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe they're looking to scale it back. That's why they're also discussing, you know, uh, a frozen conflict like like North Korea, like the Korean Peninsula. Like they're they're talking about that, establishing a DMZ, and that would just be the situation for years or maybe decades to come. Mm-hmm. Um, um and then they would pivot the focus to taiwan and china oh yeah i gotcha um so what um after Bakhmut had kind of fallen um i i can't remember some of the details surrounding like what's going on there now so kind of where's uh that all at now between russia and ukraine um so it does look like ukraine launched their counteroffensive. um there's some big attacks in the south but also there's been a lot of fighting around Bakhmut kind of the out, outskirts of the city mm-hmm. for the past week, really. It seems like it's been pretty heavy there. And I think Ukraine claimed that they made some gains, and judging by some of the maps, it looks like they did. But nothing, you know, too significant. But, it, um, but yeah, it seems like this is the counteroffensive. You know, they, they were using the German-made Leopard tanks in the, the U.S., the Bradley fighting vehicles in the south. Yeah. Russia says that they repelled, you know... Uh, a pretty some pretty big attacks they're saying that ukraine's taking a lot of losses mm-hmm. and you know they probably are it's it's impossible to know exactly the numbers because just either side is not you know telling us which is pretty strange but yeah it seems like it started and you know you, if you look at the battle lines it doesn't seem like they're making many gains because russia really had dug in and like uh reinforced their positions and the U.S. doesn't think they're going to make many gains. That's what's so crazy about this is that, you know, this was something in the initial batch of the Discord leaks. And there's been a lot of reports since then that the U.S. doesn't expect much success. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, but they still just want to continue this war. That just show, goes to show that they 
they have no problem with this idea of supporting an open-ended uh, conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of seems like at the end of the day, the desire is really to just kind of bleed rush out as much as possible. Yeah. And I think um, part of that spacing out with Ukraine is probably because they've been you keep seeing those videos of them like drone striking the you know Moscow and stuff like that and like you said some of the assassinations they're probably wanting less to get directly involved but perhaps more of just like hey we're going to keep throwing you a couple bucks here and there as long as you're kind of keeping Russia occupied then we're good with that but we don't want to get directly involved although mm-hmm. we'll 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 have a lot of rhetoric does that seem accurate I think so yeah I mean it seems like that's what I think they're talking about with like you know this is or a frozen conflict i think they just want ukraine to kind of be a problem for russia i just you know so russia is just focused on that so when you know things do pop off over taiwan which you know they are openly planning to fight a direct war with china over taiwan then you know they don't have to worry about russia you know intervening and and china's side because russia is going to be you know still occupied with ukraine but then that basically means that you know we'll enter like a world war type scenario. Um, but yeah, I think they have no intention to make the Ukrainians negotiate anything besides like freezing freezing the conflict and mm-hmm. you know just building up their military. They'll always have a nice market in Ukraine to sell weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, but and from Russia's standpoint, you know, they're at the same time. So that's that might be what the U.S. wants to do is a frozen conflict. I don't think Russia is going to uh, agree to anything like that. If if they can't get some things that they want, like Ukraine, Ukrainian neutrality, they're going to just keep going. Because mm-hmm. um, they know at this point that, you know, the U.S. and NATO might send them F-16s, which definitely risks a huge escalation of the war. But it's pretty clear that they're not going to directly send troops, the U.S. and NATO. Yeah. So they know it's more important to them. Time's on Russia's side. So just, I think this thing's going to go on for a long time, unfortunately. Yeah. Like I said, it, that kind of seems to be what they're going for is just to kind of keep a thorn in Russia's side. But um, in from what I understand, it seems like Putin's rather diplomatic, not like saying that he's a good dude or anything like that, but from like how this conflict's played out, it just seems like, you know, the US and Ukraine have been incredibly unreasonable and the u.s has incentivized ukraine to be incredibly unreasonable so russia says all right well you know if you're going to keep swinging in our face we're going to push back and keep pushing until you guys you know finally decide you want to start you know giving some leverage our way yeah i mean if you look at the beginning of the war you know putin's plan uh was basically to launch this war and then negotiate something you know kind of show how i think the idea was kind of show how serious they are about this mm-hmm. because the U S wasn't taking their demands seriously, but you know, his plan did not you know go well because when they, they first invaded, if you remember, they came in through Belarus toward and were going toward Kiev. And then they were in these negotiations with Ukraine and it looks like they were uh, sabotaged by the West. Mm-hmm. And, but when the negotiation seemed promising, it seemed like a deal was on the table. Russia pulled out of the North, which, you know, the U.S. and Ukraine said was a retreat. Um, you know, they definitely took losses in, in that. In, in, but it didn't seem like they were really going for Kiev. Mm-hmm. And so they they pulled out and they're like, all right, we're going to get a deal soon. But then the U.S. and NATO saw that and they, they smelled some weakness. And that's when, you know, they said it's time to weaken Russia. And when that first huge aid package was approved, the first one was $40 billion. Um, it wasn't the first one. The first one was 13 billion, which is mm-hmm. crazy. But then the next one was 40 billion. And that was right after the negotiations were kind of 
sabotaged. Russia pulled out of the north and they they smelled blood. I mean, if you look at before the invasion, the plan was to support an insurgency. They thought Russia was going to roll right in mm-hmm. and the U.S. wanted to support an insurgency in Ukraine. But then they saw that, you know, it sounds, you know, especially from me, because I'm very, you know, from an anti-war perspective, Putin did not go that hard in that first phase of the war of course it's horrible everything that's happened uh all the people that have been killed and even in that initial phase of course civilians are going to get killed you start a war that's that's what happens but then that's kind of the criticism putin has come under in internally you know people think the idea of the sanctions is that you know anti-war russians are going to throw out putin but what's happened is that you know they don't think he's gone far enough they think he should have launched the war earlier so putin i think did have a lot of patience and then he just made a big mistake uh, by launching that the initial part of the invasion the way he did. Um, you know, I don't think, I think he had a lot of options instead of invading. <laughs> There's a lot more he could have done, but mm-hmm. yeah, he, I, I think they thought that they could have got a deal right in the beginning, but it didn't happen. Yeah. Well, um, what was it? Boris Johnson it was kind of at the head of, sabotaging those negotiations because it was naftali bennett right that was uh trying to help sell something um initially mm-hmm. yes yeah, so there was a some a few phases of negotiations like right in the very beginning this was in march 2022 and bennett this was kind of recently earlier this year that he explained what happened he said he was mediating between putin and zelensky he actually went to moscow met with putin and then was on the phone with zelensky and he said that ultimately the West, the U.S. and its allies blocked his mediation efforts. And he said that he thought these Western powers made a decision that they wanted to, you know, take the opportunity to, you know, kind of go after Putin and hurt Russia, you know, prolong the war. And then and then there were the talks in Istanbul, Russia and Ukraine. They sent negotiators. They met in person. There was a lot of reports at the time that they were close to a deal um, and then Boris Johnson, you know, after the meeting in Istanbul, they had like virtual negotiations. And then Boris Johnson went to Kiev and told, according to Ukrainian media, told Zelensky, even if you want to sign a deal with Russia, we don't. <laughs> and he was speaking for, you know, NATO and the U.S. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, that basically sabotaged it. And, you know, Turkey's foreign minister said something really interesting because Turkey hosted the talks. Turkey the whole time has been trying to mediate. They still kind of are. You know, he said after the talks in Istanbul, he's like, all right, it looks like a deal is going to be reached soon. So this war can come to an end. But then there was a NATO summit around that time. And he said after that, he realized that there's some countries in NATO that want to prolong the war and weaken Russia. And then just a few days after he said that, Lloyd Austin, the secretary of defense, said one of their goals is to weaken Russia. So I think there's, you know, a lot of evidence that the U.S. and NATO, you know, the leading hawk hawkish countries in nato you know the uk eastern european countries sabotage those early peace talks so you know none of this had to happen and whatever ukraine ends up with now it's going to be much less than they could have had if they negotiated then yeah yeah and and that's like the saddest part of the whole damn deal um so i guess uh, that's a good pivot for uh kind of the china stuff i was going to go over the middle east but we hit that um a little bit of the towards the end of the show um it's sad when Xi Jinping is kind of playing a negotiating actor in the Middle East and even to a degree in like Ukraine. And somehow you still have everybody pointing to China as like the number one enemy. It's like no one's saying the Chinese Communist Party is like good actors, 
but I mean, it's kind of hard to say they're the bad guys in the whole world right now when we're doing everything we can to prolong a war and fling our fists in their face and they're over there settling all the wars that the U.S. has pretty much started. I mean, it's it's pretty fucked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, if you look at what China is doing, uh, you know, that Iran-Saudi deal and even just with Ukraine, I mean, they're definitely... It's funny because the way that the U.S. has dismissed them and and said they're on Russia's side and like explicitly came out against the ceasefire. I mean, I don't I don't get how you know you're supposed to look at it in any other way that the U.S. is kind of the bad guy in the situation. Because I mean, Blinken last week or pretty recently specifically came out and said that the U.S. is against the ceasefire, and he said, "Oh, I, I know it sounds nice because people won't be getting killed anymore," but and gave you know his reasons, and it's just like. The PR of that to the rest of the world, not so much to Americans who kind of buy into this stuff, but it's just so bad. I mean, it it's just doesn't look good. And then you have China sending a diplomat to Ukraine and, and Russia and other countries in Europe trying to find a way to make peace. You know, they definitely look like the better actor on the world stage um, than, than the U.S., um, especially in the Middle East. You know, there's that's something we've always been saying for a long time. You know, if the U.S. just disengaged the Saudis and the Iranians would get along. They, they would have kind of, you know, it just makes sense for them. It's in their interest to to get along unless the Saudis are getting all this support from the U.S. that they want to keep. So right now it seems like the U.S. is really trying to, they want a Saudi-Israel is normalization deal. And the whole point of that was to kind of build this anti-Iran coalition in the region. But that's mm -hmm. all, you know, getting, uh, you know, all the... China's efforts are really going against that. And I think the U.S. is really scrambling to try to give the Saudis now whatever they want uh, to for them to normalize with Israel. Like for basically, I think for an election victory, they want to get that done before the election. But it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the one thing that uh, a friend of mine who, <laughs> God bless his heart, he, he is an incredible guy. But like he asked me, so you don't think there's Chinese um, influence in our own government? I'm like, no, because they're all China hawks. There, there's no one, like George Santos is, uh, what the hell is he? He's like a Republican from New York. He's one of the only ones I've seen that has like come out explicitly yeah. against like a war with Taiwan. Go figure that dude's like, you know, dressing up. In, he's a goofball. He's a total freaking weirdo. But um, he's been one of the only guys that's been good on that. But um, he was kind of pressing me on like the BRICS stuff. And I can't say I've really read up on that. Um, I've heard other people kind of downplay it and say like it's not that big of a deal. I almost fall into that camp. But I got to be honest, I'm not as well read on that. Perhaps I should be. Mm -hmm. So um, what's kind of your take on, you know, China and, you know, normalizing with Iran and you know, being friendly with Russia? A lot of this seems kind of like a result of U.S. hegemony. And being the way that you know the U.S. government is, but um, do you think that's gonna, do you think that's gonna play like a big role? And do you think that's gonna be kind of destabilizing the U.S. Or do you think that's just kind of gonna kind of be like a low-level competitor? Let's say. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that all that stuff is gonna be is very significant. Um, it definitely, you know, threatens the U.S. You know, the the dominance of the U.S. dollar. But this is all, you know, self-inflicted because if the U.S. this is all happening because the U.S. is pursuing these policies against Russia and China and and then countries like Iran and Venezuela, you know, it's giving the, it's creating kind of this alternative global economic system when the U.S. could, you know, the, the use of sanctions is really uh, 
crazy, like how many sanctions the U.S. puts on countries. You know, they accuse the, the Chinese of economic coercion, which is just so ridiculous because basically if a government doesn't fall in line with the U.S., they try to destroy their economy. And that's explicitly what they're doing to Iran and Syria and North Korea, Venezuela, Cuba, and there's other countries that it's not so at such a high level, but, and they've been, and they're trying to do it with Russia now and they're sanctioning China. They're targeting their semiconductor industry. Um, and you know, these U S officials are saying, oh, we don't want to hurt China's economy, but it's pretty clear that that's what, that's what they want to do. So they're giving these countries every reason to kind of form this alternate system. And I think, you know, if the U S continues going on this path, I think there is going to be, you know, a collapse of the empire, that's not going to be good for Americans. That's why like they need to reverse this stuff because that's kind of the inevitability I think is a collapse of the American empire, especially if they try to go to war with China over Taiwan. I mean, that could be the end of the world as we know it, but just say it doesn't go nuclear. I mean, I think that could be, you know, our, our ultimate demise. Um, Apparently, I'm having internet difficulties uh, when you have like an eight-year-old modem or router, whatever the hell it is. Apparently, sometimes I can give you a little bit of attitude. Um, I think we're right at where um, you're just kind of mentioning a lot of this stuff is self-inflicted by the U.S. because we go around and destroy other countries' economies and stop them from recovering rather than, you know, being a – I don't want to say a good actor like China, but China goes around. The saying is, you know, China goes into a country with a briefcase. We go in there with bombs. Well, you know, both aren't necessarily good, but you could see how one side is probably going to make a little bit more friends than the other. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, it shows, you know, cause it's a shame because America could be like a real capitalist country and that could be the way we do diplomacy is by doing business. But instead, you know, we've become this empire that has a lot of hubris and thinks that it can really control everything. Um, yeah. So it, it has created this kind of alternative system um, that definitely threatens us, but you know, we could, there's an easy way I think to fix all this. Uh, but I don't think, unfortunately I can't imagine, you know, somebody doing that uh, president coming in and, you know, lifting sanctions on countries and kind of easing tensions with Russia and China. I, I can imagine that. I think the only reason somebody would ease tensions with Russia is to focus on going after China. So, you yeah, know, we need a big change. And I don't know, I've been trying to think, I've been thinking really hard lately about this stuff and like, you know, cause I'm a libertarian and I'm very radical, but I also want to kind of make it an impact and not just kind of be right about things and say, ha, ah, I was right. I want to like really kind of get, get get through to people um so that's kind of what i've been trying to focus on yeah of course so um i, I guess kind of continuing on with china um I, I know recently what we sent b-52 bombers over to australia um i can't remember if biden i, I don't think biden went but there were agreements or we're sending troops to papua new guinea and then also there's all this agreements in the philippines protecting the reefs um, and then you shared the video last week of a <laughs> aggressive maneuver by the Chinese in the South China Sea <laughs> yeah, from, yeah. from a uh, U.S. ship. And we keep seeing this stuff constantly. And like most people in our sphere are able to call it out. But I don't think other people are. And they don't realize like 
the South China Sea is like that's like our Gulf of Mexico, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if there were Chinese crafts in the Gulf of Mexico, we would like nuke Beijing. But we're over there running spy planes and you know all these warships through the Taiwan Strait, and then they like go within what was it 150 nautical or 150 yards of our ships, and we're considering that like a hostile act. So all all this stuff's so goofy. So kind of like where are we walking along? with this uh ramping up tensions with china other than uh some of the stuff that i had on yeah so those things you mentioned are important because the u.s is doing that increasing its presence in the philippines that new base in papua new guinea or new bases that it looks like the u.s is going to have there mm-hmm. um and you know there's just so much to it you know and and again this is a military buildup explicitly in the name of preparing for war with china that's what they're doing and not to mention all the new support for taiwan there's a lot going on there and this has all come with the u.s activity just ramping up military activity in the south china sea Um, more surveillance flights more aircraft carrier drills that's been steadily increasing you know over the past few years and china has been warning the u.s against all this stuff and of course the u.s isn't listening so it does look like now with these you know aggressive maneuvers in the taiwan strait and south china sea which it is kind of ridiculous on the face of it if you just look at a map but there is, it does seem like they're responding. Um, there was one incident over the South China Sea where a Chinese plane intercepted a U.S. plane pretty uh, kind of close, I guess. And then in the Taiwan Strait, uh, a Chinese ship crossed in front of an American uh, naval destroyer that was there with a Canadian frigate. You know, what are they doing over there? But And 150 yards, you know, I used to work on boats and ships. That's plenty of space. It's not that close, but still... You know, when you're in the Taiwan Strait, it's a pretty big body of water. You know, it was, they did it on purpose to send a message and Chinese officials defended the action. It's not like they're saying, no, we didn't do anything. They're saying, you know, they're here for provocation because the U.S. goes there and they say, oh, this is just routine. You know, this is freedom of navigation Uh, under international law. We can do this. And basically what China's response, uh, there's this one think tank I follow that shows you know china's positions pretty well i think uh they're based in china but and it's basically now it's like yes you know technically these ships these american ships could come through here but that's not why they're not just doing it you know to to uphold freedom of navigation and the right of innocent passage it's probably like they're clearly doing it as a provocation especially now bringing canada along they've done it with the french too in recent years you know, so China's reacting. The U.S. isn't listening to them, isn't taking any of their warnings seriously. So now they're going to be doing this. And this really raises the risk of an accident. Um, something I always mention a lot was in, in 2001, there was a U.S. spy plane collided with a Chinese jet over the South China Sea near Hainan Island. Mm-hmm. And it killed the Chinese pilot and uh, forced the American pilot to land in China on Hainan Island. And that was a huge incident. And because relations were much better at the time, it didn't turn into anything. But right now, you know, there's no dialogue between the militaries. So it's really concerning. And um, from how I understand that situation in 2001, it's basically the U.S., you know, did all these surveillance flights near the Soviet Union. And then the Soviet Union, you know, collapsed and the Cold War was over. And they basically were like, let's just start flying over the South China Sea. Why not? And China was very unhappy about it and asking for explanations, you know, leading up to that crash. Um, so we're kind of in a similar situation now with China warning against all this stuff and the U.S. not listening. 
And yeah, I mean, an accent like that, you know, because I don't think the plan from the U.S. side is to go to war with China, you know, relatively soon. I think they're kind of thinking more long term. Yeah. But, you know, that could change, you know, if two ships collide or if, uh, you know, planes and and the U.S. Another thing that they're doing with the Philippines, they're saying they're going to do joint Coast Guard patrols with the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And they have a lot of encounters, the Philippine vessels with the Chinese vessels near these disputed reefs. So that's just going to increase the chance. So. Yeah, we're just seeing more risk being taken. Um, and if you look from like, you know, not just from a, a libertarian, you know, non-interventionist perspective, if you look at this from just like a strategic perspective, like what are we getting out of these flights? Like what's the benefit of these flights? So is it worth this risk of actually like getting into a armed conflict with China? Mm-hmm. I can't imagine that it is that they're getting well, much from these surveillance flights. When you got to remember, you got to remember, they sent a balloon over here. So I that's mean, right. That, that, yeah, that yeah. gives us the liberty <laughs> to send spy planes over there. Yeah. Um. So one other thing I wanted to ask about, and, and um, I, I think it was uh, uh, Ted Carpenter on a Pat show where mm-hmm. he was talking about uh, kind of the KMT, and I know you've talked about this a little bit too. Um, it's with the Democratic People's Party that's in charge of Taiwan now, correct? With Tsai Ing-wen as the president. Yeah, Democratic Progressive Party. Okay, I knew it was something like that. Yeah. Um, the Kuomintang, um, Ted laid it out as they're a little bit more independent, but I think I recall you saying that um, they're a little bit friendlier to Beijing. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say it seemed like Ted disagreed with that, but it seemed like he also said that like you know they're like a lot more firm about like hey we are Taiwan isn't like they are more independent but they don't want to necessarily explicitly say they're independent i think what uh, ted was saying um cuz the dpp right now is that they are independence leaning they basically believe taiwan is an independent country the kuomintang historically has thought that they're china that they're uh, there is one okay. china and that right. they're the rightful you know government of china they're yeah. you know the uh political party you know the kuomintang was the nationalist party led by Chiang kai-shek during the chinese civil war that fled to taiwan and, and ruled taiwan under a military dictatorship until the 1980s and they're the political party that came from that those nationalists um <clears throat> and they have always been more uh again that's their view they believe in the one china policy they just mm-hmm. think that they're they should be china right but what Ted was saying is that even them, they're kind of more leading towards like accepting reality that, you know, they're not going to take over China. And I guess he's he's saying that there's more people in that party now that do think Taiwan is more of an independent country and should be independent. But I still think overall the party, if they get elected in 2024, the presidential elections, I think that they're going to kind of take some steps to ease tensions with China. Um, I think Ted's point was overall, like at this point, uh in china in taiwan you know there's no real desire for like a unification with china mm-hmm. but you know if you look at polling it, people still overwhelmingly support the status quo they don't want to change things because they know if they declare independence it means war and they also don't want to become you know merged with the chinese government with the chinese communist party mm-hmm. so yeah it's kind of that's the situation um but I think if the Kuomintang gets, if I have a feeling that they're going to win. I mean, I don't really know much about Taiwanese politics, but I think a lot of young people in Taiwan just aren't happy about the tensions and like, you know, Nancy Pelosi coming to visit, you know, what did that get, get them? They extended the military, you know, mandatory service. They have to, young people have to serve a year in the military. Now it used to only be like four months. So I think that stuff, 
you know, is going to make them lean more towards the Kuomintang. All right, guys, we are going to take a quick break from the show to tell you about the show's sponsor. We are now brought to you by Fox and Sons Coffees. You can see right here, I got the Den Blend Dark. Really enjoy that. Um, I've been drinking a lot of their Brazil honey prep right here. You can hear there's not a lot of beans left in it because I've been drinking it quite a bit. Um, just to tell you a little bit about Fox and Sons, why I support them and why you should too, is that uh, Stephen had started the company up in Michigan to help teach his son about entrepreneurship. Um, I'm all about that. And I do firmly believe that in order to spread liberty in our lifetimes, we have to support those who support similar values as us. And Stephen does support all the same libertarian values that I bring and talk about on the show a lot. So go to foxandsons.com, use code Kyle at check out to get 15% off of orders, $25 or more. And there's always free shipping whenever you place an order that is more than $37.99. Um, find their coffee absolutely fantastic, and I'm sure you will too. So uh, one more time, go to foxandsons.com, use code Kyle at checkout to get yourself a little discount, let them know I sent you, and support the coffee that supports you. All right, guys, thanks. Back to the show. And I think they're going to run on reducing tensions, so... It'll be interesting to see. I mean, both the U.S. and China are going to really try to influence that election. Yeah. So we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, that that uh, kind of sparked another thought in my head. Um, when it comes to kind of the Kuomintang versus the uh, DPP, um, do you think that if they win, then there's going to be like a lot more of a push? I know you kind of hinted at it, but like if the younger people and the younger voters are more about like – you know hey we don't want to be drafted for a year like i think that's pretty reasonable to ask um do you think that they're going to kind of encourage the u.s to perhaps back off a little bit yeah i mean i don't know it's tough to think that the u.s is going to back off and i i know i don't know do you know elbridge colby i've i've heard that isn't he uh one of the officials for china like so in, he's yeah. he's not uh in the government anymore he was in the trump administration and he led the 2018 national defense strategy that outlined, you know, the pivot from the Middle East to Russia and China. But he's just a ultra China hawk. He thinks the U.S. should reduce its involvement in Ukraine and focus on Taiwan. And he's always, you know, if you, his Twitter is he's really active on Twitter. And the things he says kind of are pretty amazing because he's kind of, uh, you know, he's like, I don't know if I would call him like conservative, but he's more of like a right wing hawk that he's not kind of dressing things up like the liberal, like the Biden people do, saying that they care about Taiwan's sovereignty and all this. He says, you know, on his Twitter, like, that Taiwan's not doing enough. They're not taking it seriously enough. And he thinks the U.S. should use sanctions, should threaten to sanction Taiwan if they don't Holy spend shit. more on their military. He's one of the big uh, supporters of the idea of bombing Taiwan's chip factories if they right. come under China's control. Yeah. And so, yeah, he's really... Uh, so I think his... He's very influential. He's he's advising DeSantis. I think Josh That's Hawley right. got a lot from him. Mm -hmm. You know, all the, the Republican uh, China Hawks, he's very influential, I think. I think mm -hmm. his line of thinking is uh, a good reflection of what, you know, the real China Hawks are thinking. So mm -hmm. would the U.S. takes like, if, if the Kuomintang came in and wanted to reduce tensions, uh, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the U.S. tried to really strong arm them into saying, no, this is what we're doing. <laughs> Sorry. Mm. But uh, will that work? You know, how far is the U.S. willing to go? Are they willing to try to, you know, influence a coup or something? I don't know. I don't know. But it, we'll see. Um, but, I, you know, especially let's say DeSantis gets elected. I don't think that's going to happen. Mm. But say he comes in in 2024 or um, 
you know, I guess he'll come in in 2025, but, and the Kuomintang, you know, spent Biden's last year kind of trying to ease back and they're talking to China. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if, if a Republican came in and started threatening sanctions and stuff on Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Jeez. Yeah. It's, it's absolute insanity. And that's like the sad part kind of to what we were talking to earlier. Um, RFK, you know, I, I don't think he has a shot in hell, but I mean, at least he's like a good messenger, but he's really the only one that like understands like we cannot do this war stuff with China. It seems like everyone else, like they may pay lip service, say, ah, you know, we should go to war with them. But it's like you're missing this whole just military encircle, you know, encirclement of China. And, and that's the thing that just drives me nuts. I know you and I talk about this quite a bit, but like everybody like downplays this whole china situation but though no one will ever acknowledge that like hey you know we're doubling japan's military budget um as we're saying the stuff with the reefs where kamala harris was over there saying that we'll defend we'll go to war with china over the reefs in the philippines or or stuff like that like people just ignore all this and say oh no no the the china stuff's not that big of a deal and yeah they are kind of a threat like just i just the ignorance that people have and they tell me or you that oh you guys don't know what you're talking about it's like Come on, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, at least it seems like lately a lot more people have woken up to the kind of China warmongering. Uh, you know, some people think it's because China took Russia's side in Ukraine. You know, they think that's why. But this has all been brewing for a long time. Um, and this is always kind of what it's been about. You know, the neocons and stuff always expected like a war in Southeast Asia will be like the ultimate, you know, showdown. Um for the u.s um so you know that's why it doesn't make sense you know it shows how kind of hubristic they are that they're putting they're going all in against russia you know if the u.s was serious about wanting to control southeast asia they should be uh you know why would they be worrying about eastern europe or you know as far east as europe goes um so but yeah i think more people are realizing um especially after ukraine because i think you know realizing what's driving the ukraine policy of just the fact that you have the this guy came from raytheon and he's now running the pentagon and and you know this policy that's just dumping weapons into ukraine i think more people are going to see that the same interests are going to be leading anything uh efforts to arm taiwan efforts to you know go to war with china so yeah but i mean it's really bad i'm very pessimistic about the future uh Rand paul is good on China, which is cool. Mm. He was he spoke at this thing last week. Um, Kelly Vlahos wrote up something about it at Responsible Statecraft. Mm-hmm. And he basically said, you know, they're beating the war with drums for China in my party. You know, everybody is. And, uh, you know, he was talking about how strategic ambiguity was good, how it kept the peace across the Taiwan Strait, which is good. And, but, you know, it was kind of, it's good that he's good on it, but he's acknowledging at the same time, like, everybody is beating the, the the drums for war with China mm. in the Republican Party, and you know the Democrats are just as are have pretty much caught up and are just as bad now. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean there needs to be like a like people need to start paying attention to it and really kind of you know we have to like build a movement. I don't know, mm. but it's it's kind of you know I don't know. I've been reading a lot about like anti-war movements of the past, and you know we talk about how. The Iraq War protests were so big, but they didn't do anything. <laughs> and then World War II, before the, the America First Committee is really interesting. They were huge, and it was all political across the political spectrum. People being against, 
uh, the U.S. entering World War II. And then basically the day after Pearl Harbor, they put out a statement, you know, basically saying, all right, we were attacked. We got to go to war now. That's it. And like, you know, a Pearl, similar thing, you know, ignoring all of the provocations against China and Russia, a similar thing could happen. There could be some sort of attack on a U.S. military base. They're all over the world that could draw us into a war. And it'll just be like, all right, I guess we're going, it's World War Three. That's it. You know, that could happen. And it could happen quick, you know. So it's just, uh, yeah, I definitely have a pretty bleak <laughs> outlook. <laughs> um so yeah that's why i want to focus on the taiwan china stuff really to get more people aware of it yeah and i guess i have to credit you for kind of getting me fixating on it as well because it kind of went like i remember peter schiff said something about our trade relationship with china and then i think pat came into my lexicon um like a year or two ago and then obviously you kind of inspired him to start looking at this stuff so that's why you know i probably sound like a broken record when i talk about this stuff but just because i listened to you and realize like how big of a deal this is and just nobody talks about it because completely under the radar and all the people who are good on ukraine just bad on china too other yeah. than other than like you said Rand paul but i guess uh maybe we can end on this um the good thing about Rand paul kind of being in that position is that especially after 2020 he's made himself a little bit more of a notable figure amongst republicans i could almost see a ron paul-esque revolution if Rand paul's ready to bat and if you know anything about yeah. Rand paul he's probably not up to bat but we could hope yeah. uh you know do you think that kind of opportunity lies there for him and maybe I, somebody it's, else it's funny i was thinking about that earlier today actually maybe like when i because I, when i saw that article from kelly i was like man that would be cool if Rand threw his hat into the ring for this election i think the opportunity is there for him yeah. um he's definitely not you know, as inspiring as his dad and his past efforts have been very good, but the COVID stuff, he's really made a name for himself challenging that. Yeah. And he's good at, he's been really good lately. I don't know. I mean, I, when he's good, he's, he's pretty inspiring to me when he gives speeches in, in Congress, they just introduced this end endless wars act that would repeal the 2001 authorization for war that the U S is still using today. So, yeah, I mean, I think that would be really good. Um, and I think because DeSantis and Trump, I mean, he he's a lot different than them. But he but the things that people would like DeSantis and Trump for, he's he's good on that, like like COVID mm -hmm. and, you know, the rhetoric about that, about the wars, at least. Um, I think, yeah, the opportunity for him is now to just jump in um, because and I don't know with this indictment, that's something I haven't really been following with Trump. Which is pretty crazy that they're they're they indicted him with the Espionage Act. Um, I think it's going to open up the possibility for Biden to be indicted because he basically did the same thing with taking documents. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a huge mistake on his part for letting this happen because in the future he might get locked up because of this. Um, so I don't know how that's going to affect ch Trump's chance to run because it seems like they're trying to make it so he can't run mm -hmm. with all this stuff. That's that would be my guess. Uh, but they're also kind of making him more of a martyr. So I think like a Trump-Biden election, if it happened right now, he would destroy Biden. Yeah, I, I I, don't know. I'm of kind of two fronts on this is that I, I think the way it would go is if, and maybe my opinion will change, but like Trump-Biden, Biden wins. If it's DeSantis-Biden, DeSantis ekes out a victory. Um, I, yeah. I just think there's probably a faction of diehard Trump people who just want Trump no matter what. 
there's probably a pretty large group of moderate people who are like, I just can't stand this fucking insanity. And then yeah. there's probably a lot of people who are like, I just will not vote for Trump no matter what. And it's blue no matter who. Mm-hmm. And kind of where and how many people it is on each side, I, I couldn't honestly tell you. But I, I think the I really wish Rand Paul would just throw it out there because I think he would everything that Trump and DeSantis are good on, um Rand is better. Yeah. And he, he you know, he's not perfect on Iran and some other stuff. He's gotten like, better on it. He, yeah. He's good on it now. He wasn't good on it uh, when they made the nuclear deal in 2015, but he said some good stuff about it recently. Mm. I think, yeah, I think it would be good. Like, I think the polling, right, I would be interested to see just where he polls. Mm. DeSantis is really unlikable. Like, I I have my reasons not to like him, so maybe I'm biased because of his, like, Gitmo (laughs) history and stuff. But, I mean, just listening to him talk, he's just like, he's just like whining, kind of. He just sounds like a whiny... And I'm from Long Island, so I know a lot of whiny people. And like he just reminds me of just like a whiny, you know, not just Jews that are whiny from New York. I know a lot of whiny people from New York. And he just gives me that that feeling. I'm just like, oh man. He's like, the media is very unfair to me. I don't mind. It's like, yeah, but they should be if you're good. So stop yeah. complaining about it. Oh, and it's funny because like when he was given those press conferences in 2020 and 2021, people loved him and he was energetic and punching back. But now it's like, yeah, he, and I he's actually running a campaign and he's just like just lost different. all yeah. wins. Because I saw yeah. some of that and I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, mm-hmm. that, you know, it, it made him likable, I think. But yeah, now it's just, it's just not, there's just nothing exciting about his campaign. So mm-hmm. yeah, I don't think he's going to go very far. That's why I think kind of a new Republican contender could could do pretty good. Yeah, well, <laughs> we know Vivek Ramswamy is. Uh, yeah, he, he's not the guy. He's good on some stuff, and he's thought about stuff. I, I hate to keep dragging it on, but like, yeah, Wait, who? Vivek Ramswamy. Oh yeah, he he's really uh, <laughs> stupid. I mean he he tries to act like he has this great plan for ending the Ukraine war, but it's just fantasy, and and his stuff on China is just so bad. He's just mm-hmm. like a. I'm gonna. I mean. He's just such like a joke. I, I don't know who he is. I don't know what his background is, but he's just a clown, I think. <laughs> I mean, even if he's good on some things, the way he's good on it is so stupid. Like saying Chelsea Manning was her sentence was commuted because she's trans and Assange is in Belmarsh because he's not trans. Like that's what he's saying. Oh, it's I didn't so know that. stupid. Like he's just an idiot. Yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ. All right, man. Uh, where can everybody find you? Support your work, everything like that. What do you got going on? uh antiwar.com that's where you find all my writing um my show anti-war news it's a daily podcast you can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts there's also a video on youtube odyssey and rumble and you can follow me on twitter at the camp dave nice man well uh everybody listen to this make sure you go listen to dave stuff absolutely everything i know about foreign policy to date could pretty much be attributed to dave scott horton pat mcfarland kyle anzalone and connor freeman and will porter um specifically dave because i listened to your show absolutely every single day that it comes out i have not missed an episode since you started doing it so that's um, awesome that's awesome to hear and you know the fact that you are like harping on this china stuff you and pat and like connor it's really cool to see it kind of keeps me motivated keeps me going know that some people are listening Mm mm-hmm 
Nice. Yeah. Well, uh, it, it should uh, give you a little bit of hope. I, I think I heard uh, Dave Smith talk about it a little bit on one of his uh, recent episodes. So, uh, um, and there was even that thread where I think Robbie Martin started it and everybody kind of dogged out in and uh, Dave. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. He said something like, okay, maybe I should say some more stuff about China, but I mean, he, you know, he's fantastic on the Ukraine stuff. So, I mean, you know, that's all well and good too. So yeah, man, I appreciate you coming on. Um, you know, you, you got a uh, free pass here anytime and yeah, if you've got anything else, we'll close her out um yeah that's it man cool all right everybody thanks for listening and until next time take care bet mgm has an unreal deal for sports fans in virginia turn five dollars into 150 dollars instantly when you place your first wager at bet mgm simply download the bet mgm app and sign up using code champion 150 then Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.